0: Hello and welcome to this 29th episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill and this is the podcast dedicated to the journals and history written by my great-great-grandfather William Mowbray Campbell Scott back in the 1840s, recounting his travels as an engineer, firstly in Italy and then later on in Mexico. So if you're returning to the podcast, welcome again. It's great that you're tuning in once more, and uh, thanks for doing so. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, then welcome to the wonderful world of William. I hope that it interests you further, and you'll want to listen to all the episodes that are available. Just to briefly explain the format of the podcast, I read from the journals, and then I stop for a bit to explain some of the history, geography, or humorous things that William may have said, because quite often they need a bit of explanation. And also they're a good way of uh, learning more about the history and related history of the things mentioned. So um, it can be a pretty broad spectrum of uh, historical content and uh, also (laughs) helps to understand what he's actually waffling on about, which uh, I can assure you when I first read them was quite difficult sometimes. So that's basically it. I've just got a few other things to say as well. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned that I'd done a video edit of a interview that I did with the railway historian Anthony Dawson. And I'd done the first half of that video edit. Well, I've actually now finished the second half of that video. So if you go onto the YouTube channel and put in the search engine a grand tour with my great-great-granddad... You'll see, along with all the episodes of the podcast, which are uploaded as sound files, you'll also see a couple of videos there. The first part, you'll see a picture of myself and Anthony in conversation side by side. But the second half of the interview has a picture of a nice lion-type railway locomotive on the front of it, so uh, or on the thumbnail, so you'll know which is which. Um, it's basically a visual version of episode 25. So if you've listened to that episode where me and Anthony discuss the early railways, because that is the time in which William was doing his engine driving and steam locomotive engineering. But you want to see a visual version of it, which... uh helps to add some images and so forth to illustrate what myself and Anthony are discussing, then uh, you can do that by watching the YouTube video. It's all additional content, isn't it? So I hope, uh, you know, you might like to do that. As I say, it does in some ways help to expand on the uh, information further than the audio content alone. Just to say the usual things I say at the beginning of the podcast, there is a Twitter or X account, that is Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour, that's the number 3G Grand Tour and uh, you can message me or you can put comments down there or anything you like about the podcast if you wish, hopefully friendly it's always good to get some feedback about the uh, podcast from people. There's also a Facebook page as well, and that's at Grand Tour with my great great granddad. Again, that's another way to uh, exchange any ideas or any views you have about the podcast. Do subscribe because that's always uh, helpful as well. Lastly, there's also a Mastodon account as well if you have Mastodon accounts. And that's at Scotted at Universadon.com and that's GG Grand Tour. So you can also contact me through that social media platform. So I should really explain where we are with things in this intro to the next episode. At the end of the last one, William had finished his time working on the railway and that gives him a little bit more time to explore or re-explore various important buildings and sights and sounds around Milan that he didn't have a chance to while he was working on the Milan to Monza railway itself. So he'd basically been going around various churches and government buildings. Now, at the beginning of this next episode, he firstly visits a building called the Villa Belgioso Bonaparte, which, as its name suggests, is linked to Napoleon. The reason for that is, although it was a palace there already, when Napoleon invaded Milan or took over Milan as part of his uh, Italian campaign and started running the country... This villa, or palace, was the one that he chose to use as his place of residence while he was in Milan. And then at the end of this episode, he also then goes on to talk about some of the people that he's met while he's been in the city, and also his views and observations about some of the locals as well. So I hope you enjoy that bit too. The royal villa or summer palace is at a short distance from the last-mentioned edifice and is a small building for a royal palace, but what it wants in size is fully made up by its extreme beauty and the pure classic style of its Grecian architecture. This is another of the gems left to posterity of the taste of the great emperor, Napoleon. The building is of the Ionic order and consists a centre and two wings of three storeys in height. The basement story contains the domestic offices, the first floor, the state apartments, and the upper, the lodging rooms. The grand staircase in marble is a chef d'oeuvre of art. The state apartments contain some fine paintings, mirrors and bronzes, a number of fine paintings and other works of art, and were removed at the time of the abdication, being the private property of Eugène Bahane. In the pediments of the two wings are groups of sculpture that on the left represent Phaeton driving the chariot of the sun and the other of Neptune in his car surrounded by submarine deities. On the apex of the pediments along much of the balustrades 30 figures of white marble representing the principal deities of the heathen mythology. The capitals of the columns are finished in the most superior style and below the windows are three tiers of bas-reliefs containing groups illustrative of the principal events of Grecian history. The pleasure grounds in front, laid out in the best taste, wooded, water and lawn, with several small temples in the small space of ground they cover, give the whole the appearance of some fairy scene. It certainly is the most perfect gem of art. At the back is an immense kitchen garden, and on one side of it, parallel with the ramparts, is a covered walk, nearly half a mile in length, attached to the palace, is stabling for 60 horses with proper accommodation for the domestics that attend them. So I'm just going to stop here to discuss the royal villa of Napoleon or the villa Belgiozzo Bonaparte. Again, William says this is yet another example of a, I think he says, something like architectural delight created or bestowed upon this area of the city by the emperor. But the royal villa that he's describing in this bit of Milan had actually been built by a previous aristocratic member of Italian society, Ludovico Barbiano di Belgioso. Sort of got it right. (laughs) Oh dear. As William describes, it is quite, I think, for a palace. I mean, it does really look like a palace. I think I discussed before how palazzos were often part of a street scene, but this is a proper palace. It's in its gardens. It's uh, detached from anything else, and it does really look like a proper palace, and it has these grand statues on the top, so it does look very nice. But it's not that big as William describes it, so perhaps in a way it's a bit on the small side. But it was taken up, once Napoleon is in power, it's taken up as his residence, and then basically his um, adopted stepson, Eugene de Bahania, who was actually Josephine's son, he is then installed there because he's given the role of governing Milan and this area of Lombardy, Venetia by Napoleon. And, uh, you know, he was responsible for quite a lot of the stuff that uh, Napoleon planned for Milan. So it was primarily his residence more than Napoleon's, really. But as I say, yeah, it's very nice looking. It's in these very attractive gardens as well that are very nicely designed and and set out. There's a back part of it adjoining the front facade, and that is now the Museum of Modern Art in Milan. When they say modern art, it's mainly artists from around the sort of 19th century going into the 20th century. People like uh, Pompeo Marchese, who is a sculptor that William mentions quite a lot, but it does have some more modern artists' work in its collection as well as works by Picasso. Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, Cézanne. So there's some, what well, you might say, more modern art there from the early 20th century. It's a very nice looking building. So no wonder Napoleon thought it was an appropriate building for him to take residence in when he was in Milan and use as his home or pad. <laughs> Do you have pads? I don't know. When you're an emperor, my emperor's pad. <laughs> Certainly a bit more than a pas de tier, as they'd say. <laughs> I think most of us would be quite satisfied to live in the villa Belgiosa Bonaparte very comfortably. <laughs> yeah council tax must be quite high, though I imagine <laughs> do they have do they have Italian equivalent of council tax? I'm sure there must be some local taxation in uh, Milan. Continuing my perambulation, in the afternoon I went and had another ramble to the cemetery outside the Porta Orientale, where entirely there is a piece of ground from fifteen to twenty acres. The centre of the space is filled with crosses bearing the name and age of the person interred. The walls that enclose this space are completely covered with marble monuments, but I only saw one that was deserving of attention. It was of white marble and represented an angel leading away a wife and mother from her husband and three children. The whole of the work, though on a small scale, is admirably executed. The bright rays that ornament the face of the mother at the victory obtained over sorrow and death is finely contrasted with the grief-stricken countenances of the father and his children. March 7th Spent the greater part of the morning in rambling about the Galleria Cristoforis, a place of considerable length and filled with handsome shops, the space between them covered with a glass roof. It bears a great resemblance to the Burlington Arcade in London. March 9th, strolled around the canal that surrounds the old part of the city, visited the Church of San Lorenzo. This is an octagonal structure. It is a plain but very heavy building, The Milanese think a great deal of this church, but for my own part I cannot see anything particular about it. Next to the Church of San Celso, here indeed is something worthy of attention. I remember having a few minutes glance at it about two years previous, but I had almost forgot it was the place I found on this visit. Before the front of the church is a large square, court or cloister, surrounded by arcades of a light and pleasing character. The front of the building itself is of white granite, intermixed with marble. On each side of the centre door are two statues, which for symmetry of form, gracefulness, and delicacy of execution surpass all I have seen. The first represents Eve, tempted by the serpent with the forbidden fruit. The serpent has the head and upper part of the body of a beautiful woman, whilst the long and scaly folds of the reptile are coiled round the tree itself. The serpent holds in one hand the apple, with part of the branch hanging to it, and Eve, with head averted, as if conscious of the degradation and wickedness of the act, stretches her arm behind her to take the tempting prize. The other is Adam eating the fruit, and it seems as if the first taste had already convinced him of the sin and impropriety of the act. The uplifted arm, the hand holding the half-eaten fruit, The countenance glowing with shame, grief, and remorse are so true, so plainly and so faithfully depicted that I must again say I have never seen the art of the sculpture so true to nature. A number of well executed altar reliefs are also placed in the front, among which I noticed the Nativity of Christ, the adoration of the shepherds, the flight into Egypt, the baptism by John in the river Jordan, Christ at the Well of Samaria, and others. The interior is also extremely beautiful. In the centre rises a lofty and well-proportioned dome. Above the cornice, it is divided into twelve compartments, each compartment containing a statue of one of the Apostles, and the paintings of the upper part all illustrative of the lives of the Apostles. The ceiling of the centre aisle is vaulted, the ground of which is painted dark, and on it are placed large flowers and stars in bold relief and richly gilt. The ceilings of the side aisles are groined, painted in fresco in the best style, At the meetings of the groynes, finely carved figures are placed, one hand stretching out to a cluster of flowers and fruit in the crown of the arch. Just to say this term groin here, the definition is a curved edge formed by two intersecting vaults. The side aisles pass entirely around the church behind the high altar, the east end of the building forming a semicircle. Not only the high altar and that dedicated to the Virgin, but those that surround the body of the church are of the most rare and costly materials. Marbles of the most varied hues, verd antiques, elaborately and delicately executed mosaics, are here in the greatest profusion. Nor must the pavement itself be forgotten, entirely of marble, inlaid with every variety of shade and colour, form on the whole one of the best and most complete structures. It has hitherto been my lot to notice, and I can safely say that I left it with great regret. March 10th, Palazzo de Brera now known as the Pinacoteca de Brera. I had often heard of the galleries of paintings and sculpture in this noble edifice, but my professional duties had always interfered to prevent me seeing them, as I consider it no use visiting such places as these without having sufficient time to examine them thoroughly. I have seen many times the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square in London. I have visited the famed collections of the Louvre, the Luxembourg, and Versailles, but for brilliancy of colouring admirable proportions and fine keeping of the figures, I do indeed think that the Brera Gallery surpasses them. Amongst the various masters whose works I noticed were Paul Veronese, Rubens, Titian, Luini, Van Dyck, Gurano, Albano, etc. Amongst the paintings in this vast collection that more particularly attracted the attention are The Marriage of the Virgin by Raphael, The Nativity of Christ, also by Raphael, The Last Supper by Paul Veronese, Hagar and Her Children driven forth by Abraham by Giriano, The Finding of Moses in the Bulrushes by Titian. A great many of these paintings had been originally executed al fresco, and have been cut from the walls they formerly graced, and enclosed in handsome and massy frames. Others there are painted on wood. There was one of that kind that pleased me very much. It was in three compartments. The centre one represented the Virgin, holding in her arms the infant Jesus. The left, a Pope of Rome and a Cardinal, and on the right, two monks of the Dominican and Franciscan orders. But the most remarkable feature of this extraordinary work was that the triple crown of the Pope, the Crozier and the Keys of St. Peter, was executed in relief, as were also the crowns on the other heads of the Virgin and Child. The Missals, prayer books, and the Rosaries of the monks and the other ornaments, the robes of the Pope, especially bore such an extreme resemblance to reality, that at first I had some difficulty in believing they were not such. The faces, hands, and other parts of these figures were splendidly true to nature, but it is neither by one visit, nor yet by any description, that you can convey any idea of collections of this nature. They must be visited, and that many times to appreciate all their beauties. The Sculpture Gallery contains also some admirable works amongst which are Diana and a sleeping Venus, most exquisite, both in design and execution, the Three Graces, a basso-relief, a copy from the Venus de' Medici in the gallery at Florence, Mercury, Melancholy, Neptune, Diana holding a stag, a sleeping angel, a dying gladiator, Bacchus, Apollo, the boy taking the thorn from his foot, a copy from the celebrated statue in the Pitti Palace of Florence, Sleep, a particularly lovely figure, a man taming a wild horse, a gladiator combating a wild bull, and the fugitive extracting the thorn from the lion's foot. There is also two models from which the horses were cast that ornamented the top of the Arch of Peace, an enormous wild boar, several busts of eminent men who have been members of the academy, a great many bas reliefs of historical subjects, and plaster casts from the most celebrated antiques. In this portion of the building are placed a series of paintings to which the annual prize has been given, an exhibition of the works of living Lombardian artists taking place in the gallery in the month of July. These works are all from classical history, from the year 1803 to the present. On the upper part of the frame is inserted the year, and on the lower the name and residence of the artist. This is another of the benefits the city of Milan owes to Napoleon. A great many clever artists are always at work in the galleries, taking copies from the most celebrated works, being orders both from the natives of Italy as well as distinguished foreigners. A very great business is done here that way, the most parts finding their way to foreign countries, and more especially England. Amongst the artists employed in copying, I noticed a young lady of handsome and prepossessing appearance, engaged on a painting of most admirable workmanship, and two others in a finished state that were pointed out to me as the work of the same lady, These were of the most exquisite beauty. On the principal staircase are some full-length statues of the principal benefactors of this institution. That of Walter of Como of White Marble is a very fine work. This building beside the galleries contains the apartments of the Academy of Music, Philosophy, Medicine etc. and the Observatory. Right, I'm going to stop at this point to talk about some of the things mentioned in this rather long section that I've just read from the journals. So uh, at least you haven't had to listen to me waffling on with my explanations for uh, quite a while. First of all, William mentions this cemetery that he visits. I'm pretty certain that isn't there anymore. Obviously, Milan's Massively expanded beyond the walls of the old city, and when William's walking around it, there's the old walls and then the ring of navigation sort of canals that goes around the centre and then a little bit beyond, but not much more than that. It's possible that it could have been a because he describes the number of acres of it as being a large area that it could have been a place called the Lazaretto, which was like a big square area with a church in the middle that had formerly been used as another kind of place to house. Plague victims as well, that would have been there at William's time, and still existed. And it's possible he means this one, but I suspect not because I think he probably would have mentioned it more specifically with that name. Then he mentions this shopping mall or gallery, the Christopheris Gallery. Um, it was named after a family called Christophorus, Italian family who were in Milan at that time and had it built. It's a little bit younger than the Burlington Arcade that he mentions. The Burlington Arcade was opened in 1819 and the Christopher Forest Gallery was opened in 1832. That's not there anymore either. It was basically demolished in about 1932 when this whole area called the uh, Piazza San Biblia was kind of reorganised. And so, unfortunately, you can't see the Christopher's gallery anymore. It was replaced, as I say, in the 30s. This whole area was reorganised and redesigned. And um, the gallery itself was uh, replaced by a building that's now called the Palazzo del Toro, Palace of the Bull. And uh, that's a much more modern, quite brutal kind of uh, futuristic building that was uh, built in the 1930s so it kind of had a lot of that influence of that era of architecture i wouldn't say particularly nice replacement for the gallery but um, just going back to the gallery it was the site of some early interesting developments in society and it housed a kind of precursor to a cinema and then it did actually house a little cinema there as well. And it was also a place where a well-known optician, but became more famous as a photographer, a man called Alessandro Gironi, had a shop. And he did imported the new daguerreotype, I think that's how you say it, daguerreotype photography technique from um, Paris. Daguerreotype photos are essentially the first real photos that we would recognise as being called that today. So this Alessandro Gironi began his shot there and began taking photographs of people there. And he became quite famous, actually, because a lot of the people he photographed were members of the Risorgimento, which was like the members of the drive for Italian unification. So it was the leaders of many of the people at the head of that resurgence in Italian nationalism and demand for unification, Garibaldi and others. So um, he photographed those eminent members of that group at that time but as i say it's not there anymore and actually a much grander one was built about 30 years later which is still there that's called the galleria vittoria emmanuel ii that was built in 1865 and that to some degree was a much grander bigger gallery or arcade or more than the christoph forest one and um that became, if you like, more of a place for people to do their shopping and I suppose the Christoph Forest gallery became a bit neglected after that. And I suppose this whole area of central Milan was then intended to be uh earmarked for redevelopment and reorganisation. Just moving on to the churches a little bit that he mentions he mentions um San Lorenzo, which he doesn't seem to particularly think is that great. I wonder whether the Milanese think highly of it, possibly because it looks like it was one of the very, very oldest churches in Milan. It goes right back to sort of just after Roman times, So that may be why it was quite venerated by Milanese at the time, as William describes it. I mean, its sort of history is back to 590 BC, but, you know, it actually goes back further than that. It is still there today. So it's got a very long history in Milan. At one time, it was surrounded by buildings, but because of bombing in the Second World War, a lot of the buildings around it were hit in that conflict and were demolished, and then they were never rebuilt. So from what I can see of pictures today, it does stand in a spare bit of ground. And at one time, it was the location for executions that happened in Milan, or a place of execution in Milan, and um, that went on there right up until 1830, so not long well, in fact, I've seen the date of it going into 1840, so it's possible when William was there he might have witnessed an execution happening there, but he doesn't mention it. The church that he does seem to like a lot is the Church of San Celso, as he calls it, or Santa Maria Prezzo San Celso. As it's now known, the San Celso bit is like almost really like there are two churches there, and the San Celso bit is like an older church adjoining the Santa Maria Prezzo bit of it. But it is very grand. The facade of it, of the Santa Maria Prezzo bit, which is no doubt the bit that William's talking about, has got lots of big statues on the top, very ornate, all marble, and it's done in, in what they call the Mannerist style, which was the precursor to Baroque art, but it's kind of development of Italian art from Leonardo and Michelangelo's sort of time, getting even more ornate, really. So quite fancy looking. <laughs> quite fancy looking. Nice. <laughs> and um, William goes into a lot of detail about the, all the various artworks inside it, so I won't go into that so much, but Probably, if you're a lover of that era of art, it may well be worth a visit, and I suspect the inside of it is very um, ornate and glorious, as uh, William describes it. It's over the years had various bits added to it, so it's kind of got grander. But certainly all the artwork inside it is why William likes it, and probably no doubt very um, ornate marble interiors as well. And the last thing I wanted to get onto (laughs) was the Pinacoteca di Brera or Brera Art Gallery, <laughs> as is often the case, I think the English version is easier for me to say. He calls it the Palazzo de Brera, it's now called the Pinacoteca Pinac- Pinacoteca de Brera, I don't say it very easily, the Brera Art Gallery. It's one of the most famous art galleries in Milan, and it has all these artworks dating from about the 13th century to the 20th century, so it's full of, as William mentions paintings by Rubens, by Raphael Caravaggio, Tintoretto, they're all there really, so pretty well every well-known artist of that period stretching between those times. So um, no doubt if you have a few days in Milan you would like to visit it prior to becoming an art gallery, as William mentions, it's an observatory as well and things like that, and that was part of its time when it was used and inhabited by the Jesuits and then uh, it became uh, an art gallery in 1776 but um, it had previously been a place that the Jesuits had occupied and that's why the observatory and things like that were there, and still are I think, and then it became this art gallery, so um, that's pretty old isn't it, 1776? Really, you could go on a website and read all about everything that's in it. So I I won't go into too much detail about the artwork. But one thing that William mentions that did trigger my interest, because he observes this young lady artist copying works in the art gallery that are then sold to, as he says, primarily British or English visitors. And, of course, this was actually all part of the Grand Tour. You know, you went on the Grand Tour and you obviously had to have sort of a mementos that you'd been on this grand tour of Europe. So probably the height of this artwork and art copying was going on a little bit prior to William's time. I imagine by William's time it was probably becoming near the end of it as a well-known trade. But certainly the very wealthy aristocrats that were doing the grand tour in the 18th century particularly could afford to either have genuine artworks sold to them and exported back to the UK or as William describes had copies made and probably by the original artists sometimes as well if they were still alive but I just thought I'd mention a little bit prior to William's time there but a very well-known exporter of Italian artworks was a chap called Thomas Jenkins and he was just prior to the 19th century, so he died in 1800, I think it is. But he had a very big trade in exporting artworks and antiquities from Italy to the UK. And uh, he sounds quite a character. I would look him up because there's all sorts of things about him uh you know, he was originally an artist and he went out to Italy and then stayed there, basically, and started to make lots of money exporting things. Probably to rather dim-witted, <laughs> dim-witted young cats who'd come out from this. I was a marvelous sculptor. I wouldn't like that at home. <laughs> Certainly, I could knock off one for you. <laughs> and, um, anyway... He really had his mitts on lots of this sort of art trade, you know, and in fact he gets criticised. but there's some talk that he might have been a spy as well on Jacobite infiltrators and things like that. So it's probably worth looking up to get in a bit more detail. I'll just read a quote about him because I thought it's quite funny because one of the people who went out there on his grand tour was uh, James Adams. Robert Adams was his brother and he was a well-known architect. Anyway, this is what James Adams, sorry, James Adam, said about Thomas Jenkins. He said, We have another excellent countryman at Rome who plays his cards there to admiration. Bob, that's Robert, his brother. Bob will remember him. His name is Jenkins. Last winter, he sold no less than £5,000 worth of pictures, etc., to the English, of which every person of any knowledge is convinced. He put £4,000 in his pocket. <laughs> so uh, i think that sort of sums up old thomas jenkins it reminds me of ridiculous objet d'art shops in places like notting hill which charge a fortune for you know a teacup or something just people with more money than cents go in and buy them for huge amounts of money but i think thomas jenkins definitely was doing that from that sort of period But it's interesting, though, to see that William observes this happening a lot when he's visiting this gallery. And it's a shame he doesn't mention this young lady's name, who he seems to admire so much and her skill and art. It's quite interesting, isn't it, to hear a a woman of that time doing it. I wonder kind of how highly regarded they were for their own artwork and own endeavours, really. It's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? The whole thing of forgery or copying—it's <laughs> quite a grey area, really, isn't it? When you consider it, just because something is old, it was still a knockoff of some other great artwork by Titian or Caravaggio, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know which artwork she was particularly doing at the time. So I just thought that that little picture there of him watching this lady intrigued me a bit. So that's why I started going on about it. Anyway, back to the journal. <laughs> And now that I am about to take my leave of the city of Milan, it is right that I should say something about the inhabitants thereof, as well as those of the surrounding district. And first, as to their nobility. It fell to my lot to come in close contact with several of them during my residence in that country, and, to use a familiar term, even to stretch my legs under their mahogany, where I felt as comfortable as if I had been in the society of equals. They are kind, hospitable, and generous, polite to their equals, civil and familiar to their inferiors. Among them I must not forget the Conte Triulci and his amiable Contessa, nor the Marchese Bavillacroix, and his handsome and lovely consort of Scottish extraction, but born and educated in Italy, she forgot not the land of her fathers, nor yet their countrymen. Of the Departments of Trade and Commerce, I must particularly mention Signor Battaglia, the eminent banker, who, though nearly half a century has passed over his head, still retains in his person all the vivacity and freshness of youth, and who, during the former part of my residence there, was constantly compelling me to partake of his hospitality." and of his excellent advice I shall always retain a grateful recollection. During the latter part of my stay, professional duties and distance prevented me from availing myself so often of his kindness. To Signor Valeria I owe a similar debt, to the custode of the cathedral at Monza, to Signor Penze, and Signor Arnaldi, and a number of others. As for the shopkeepers and lower class of tradesmen, I cannot speak in such favourable terms. Their system of asking much more as they mean to take consumes an immense portion of valuable time in bargaining, and they would also rob a foreigner without the slightest compunction, considering them fair game, though I certainly found a solitary exception or two. As to the lower classes, they are idle, dishonest, deceitful, and inveterate liars, flying to the knife upon the slightest provocation, even though the penalty of death is attached to the mere offence of drawing one. The peasantry are quite a different race to those of the cities and large towns, mutually hating and despising each other, and very rarely mixing in marriage. The Lombardian peasant is a fine, tall, stout, and active fellow, hardy and industrious, peaceable and sober in his habits, and contented with his lot. The females when young are handsome, but as they labour much abroad, exposure to the weather soon spoils their complexion. The peasantry here are situated quite different to the agricultural labourers of England, as they do not receive any wages. The land in this part of Lombardy is chiefly held by large proprietors, who find cattle, implements and seeds, while the peasantry till the ground, rear and feed the silkworms, gather the grapes and make the wine. The females milk the cows, make cheese and butter and attend to the rearing of poultry etc. In all of these, the peasant has a certain share according to the quantity, and then, after the wheat is gathered, the peasant plants his Indian corn and kidney beans, pumpkins, melons, etc., which belong to him alone, besides the privilege of growing a certain quantity of vegetables in the spring, both for his own use and for sale, so that they are pretty well off, as the saying is, and indeed some of them are very rich, and possessed of considerable property in the towns and cities. I just thought I'd stop briefly here to say a few words about some of the people William mentions here and uh, these quite highfalutin people it seems he's mixing with in Milan. I haven't actually really been able to find any reference to the people he mentions specifically but obviously they do seem to be quite high up. The only reference I could find was um, he mentions the Marchese Bevelacroix or Marquis Bevelacroix And the Bevelacroix family is, uh, or were, and or are, I think, they're still there, a sort of noble family of Italy in that northern part of the country. So in the region that William's in, their history goes pretty far back. And uh, there's a castle and palazzos and things like that. Their kind of origins or main seat of power or influence is Verona. But um, obviously they had many branches and... uh, uh, the Marquis that William must have known and his um, wife of Scottish extraction <laughs> was obviously the ones that William was mixing with at the time. And I do like that phrase where he says, I managed to stretch my legs under their mahogany, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, you know, got his feet under the table, as it were, with the uh, hobnobs of uh, the area. And uh, obviously, people like uh, Signor Battaglia as well, who was the banker, who seems to have been a very friendly chap. It's one of these things, I do find it quite hard sometimes to judge exactly what William's status is. You know, he obviously is mixing with some of the nobility, but then on the other hand, he's working as an engineer as well. And I do get the impression he does spend quite a bit of time, <laughs> the kind of expression I'm familiar with, on the tools, as it were, you know, actually mending and fixing things. Certainly that's the case when he's out in Mexico. So it's kind of odd, isn't it, class I think these days we almost associate class much more with people's professions than perhaps they did then. William is obviously a man of some status and is able to order around people. And also in his own mind, you know, he refers to the lower class of tradesmen and stuff like this, um, and the peasantry. So he obviously regards himself as fairly high status, but not quite, not quite in the aristocratic league, I suppose. But you know, yeah, it's just kind of interesting thing. I've often said I consider William to be a bit of an upwardly mobile type character anyway. But it does seem that he did make some friendly acquaintances when he was there. He does quite often belittle what he terms the lower classes and peasantry and stuff like this. And this term he uses is uh, flying to the knife when he's talking about the uh, lower classes in Milan and their tendency to be violent and stuff like that. It's actually something he uses quite a lot and actually more so when he's in Mexico. So I don't read too much into that other than, you know, I suppose times in some ways were perhaps more violent than in our day now. Or certainly perhaps the availability of people to have knives and have brawls and street fights was maybe a more common occurrence. I don't know. I suppose you'd have to literally go into the figures and do a cross comparison of how many people died of stabbings in Milan over the years, you know, and kind of get an idea of if there were any trends. I don't know. But as I say, this flying to the knife phrase, it's almost like, oh, they're quick to temper. You could almost read it that way rather than actually doing other people harm. And it's quite interesting. It talks about this antagonism, as it were, between the the country peasant and the city lower classes. I mean, I suppose that's something that's been there throughout the ages, really. Quite interesting about how he makes the comparison between peasantry or Let's call them farm labourers. I don't really like the word peasantry. It has connotations these days, doesn't it? Um, Farm labourers in uh, the UK being paid a wage and then how they get their income here in Italy. It's quite an interesting way. So I suspect what he's suggesting here that the owners of the land got the profit from the more valuable crops which were tended by the labourers. So, you know, the cattle, the silkworms, the wine these were the crops that really brought in the money the extra money and then um, the uh, farm laborers themselves as he mentions were allowed to grow their own things like pumpkins and goods and things like that to then sell on and make their own money from and uh, from what he says you know did quite well from it and even had their own properties in the cities so yeah it's an interesting comparison possibly sounds better i would say for the Italian farm labourers of that time, to me, that they had more control over their income. As we know, in the 19th century, a lot of farm labourers quickly migrated to the towns in the UK with the Industrial Revolution happening. So maybe that gives you an idea of what poverty was like, and there's quite, a, quite keen desperation to get away from it. Then maybe that wasn't quite the case in Lombardy Venetia, (laughs) where the farm labourers had a pretty good thing, it sounds like to me. So I just thought I'd mention that. You know, probably if I could go to Milan and look at family records, I might be able to get more detail about these various people that he mentions of the aristocracy and trade and commerce. But he's certainly mixing with all strata of society, isn't he? Oh, Will. As I say, I don't know what his relationships were like with his actual workers on the railway. Uh, Maybe he thought he was a bit of a snob. I've said this before, and I I kind of get a feeling maybe maybe he was, so I don't know. But anyway, uh, (laughs) okay, back to this episode from The Journal. I will now continue to describe the dress of the Milanese. The higher classes follow the Parisian fashions, and are generally good figures, and appear to great advantage as their robes are invariably made of the richest materials. Very few of the female bourgeois or citizens wear bonnets, but instead have a black veil which falls over the bust and is very becoming. In visiting places of worship, all females, even the vice-queen herself, put on the veil. The female peasantry rarely have any covering of the head, but wear a number of silver pins in their hair, as described in the former part of this work. Yes, if you listen to episode 14, you'll hear William's description of this particular type of headgear with the pins inserted in a sort of bun at the back of the women's hair. Blue, yellow and red are their favourite colours for their garments, and they generally have the upper part of the dress a different colour to the lower, The males are fond of velveteen jackets and trousers, adorned with a profusion of buttons, steeple-crowned broad-brimmed hats, a broad velvet band, and an enormous buckle in front. Whilst I am the subject of dress, I must say a few words as to their treatment of newborn infants. These, as soon as they come into the world, are wrapped with a bandage about four inches broad, from head to foot, the arms fast to the sides, and the legs together, They then place the infant on a pillow, and take several turns around it also, so that instead of taking hold of the child, they take hold of the pillow in moving it, the mother holding it in that way to give to the breast. This pillow is kept hard and fast to the child for a month, and for many weeks afterwards it is kept bandaged up, and even when they commence dressing the child in the ordinary way, they always replace the bandages during the night. And they do this, so they say, to make the children grow straight. Well, upon my word, the cure is worse than the disease, for I was never in another city where there were so many crooked, deformed cripples as there are in Milan. A friend of mine used to say that it was continually reminding him of Manchester, and the victims of mines and machinery. It is also a nasty, dirty system, and gives the children the exact appearance of Egyptian mummies in a museum. It is, however, handy in another respect, for when strapped to the pillow, I've seen both men and women carry them under their arms, the same as they would a parcel. They also have another disgusting system. When the child is about three months old, they take and plaster its head all over with a black paste, just like cow's dung, under the pretense to make their hair grow. The Milanese are not affectionate mothers, for very few nurse their own children, and I've known some of them pinch and almost starve themselves for the purpose of putting out their infants to nurse. The consequence is that, owing to neglect, hundreds perish before they reach their second year. As to their style of living, it is different with the different classes. The upper, French. The middle, a system of their own. The Milanese tradesman contents himself during the week with a little minestra, black broth or vegetables, but then let the Sunday or festival days come, and away marches Signor Bourgeois to the Isola Bella, albergo del piaggio, mezzalingua, railway tavern, or monza, or some other famed house of good living. And then see him surrounded by his family, and see what a swell he cuts. See him lolling out of the windows, or on the balcony, calling to everyone he knows as much to say, Do you see me, my boy? I'm here. Such is Signor Bourgeois, and the lower classes imitate him as much as their pittance will allow.' Okay, this is the last section of the journal that I'm going to talk about at this point. Just a few areas to cover that I thought are kind of notable. It's quite a colourful extract, this actually, especially William's description of the bourgeois gentleman shouting out the window about being in a fancy uh, restaurant or place of good living, I think is how he puts it. Something like that anyway. Obviously, he mentions these various fashions that the women follow. You know, following the Paris fashion and things like that. So uh, that's kind of fairly obvious, I suppose. One thing that I thought was a bit odd, having read this extract, is uh, you know he talks about this practice of the Milanese wrapping their babies in bands of cloth. I mean, basically, that's what we'd call swaddling, and it's a very widespread practice at this time so I'm slightly puzzled Will doesn't refer to it as that. It is true to say that in the UK swaddling did die out by about the end of the 1700s so as a practice it wasn't done much in the UK probably by the time William himself was having children but in Italy there are reports of it um, in certain areas being carried out right up until the 1960s and uh, I mean it's still in some I think you would say perhaps alternative medicine theories thought to be a good thing to do I think the general medical consensus is that restricting babies movements and stuff like that is not a good idea actually and uh, links to things like cot death and stuff like that so I suppose it was this particular kind that Williams described here in Milan with the pillow as well but yeah, that's really all it is. It's just swaddling, but obviously something that William hadn't really come across before in his life, I suppose. But it wasn't an unusual practice at all, really, at that time, certainly in Italy. This reference he makes to them covering the hair with black paste... I thought I'd done some research on this and managed to find an actual reference to it in Italy and land, but I've since then had absolutely no joy finding a particular reference to it in Italy. But it's not uncommon for various cultures to put things on babies' hair. Things like almond paste and honey and olive oil and all sorts, and in fact, it's something that people still kind of recommend doing. But if anyone really knows detailed history about that particular practice in Italy, I'd love to hear from you. I've even sort of been into forums <laughs> and like read it in Italy and asked the question, does anyone know about this? But uh, it's, uh, it actually quite often the question gets rejected um it's not for any particularly unseemly reason i'm just curious to know if there was a particular name for it as i say i thought i'd come across it somewhere in some sort of writing but i haven't really been able to but as i say it's not unusual even today people are covering their children's hair with various concoctions sorry just going back to the swaddling thing (laughs) gotta make you chuckle about that thing where his friend says uh He'd never seen so many cripples around. His friend said it reminded him of Manchester and uh, accidents with machinery. I don't know if I could get away with going up to Manchester these days and um, saying something like that. Anyway, and also lastly, he says this thing about Italian mothers not being particularly affectionate and starving themselves so they can put them out to nurse. I'm pretty certain he's talking about wet nursing here—that practice of other women breastfeeding certainly the better off in society's children. And uh, I suppose, as we discussed earlier, higher echelons and circles that William's talking about and which he revolves in, that would have been a very common practice and it was widely done, unfortunately. I say unfortunately, but it was kind of out of necessity, actually. Really, it wasn't till the 20th century that any form of what we would call formula milk was invented so in some ways wet nursing as a practice when women themselves for whatever reason it could be illness it could be just genetics you know they couldn't actually lactate themselves (laughs) how did i end up talking about this subject anyway you know they would need to find a way of feeding babies who were very young and needed milk from birth so wet nursing in some ways was a bit of a necessity but actually if you look into the whole history of it it is actually quite fascinating i think some fairly bizarre myths began to arise around it as well um (laughs) you know there was some sort of thought that the wet nurse in some way could transfer her own character to the baby through wet nursing so it was generally thought that uh Ladies with red hair were not a good choice to be wet nurses because they tended to be quick-tempered, and <laughs> so this would be passed on to the children. So if you were a red-headed young woman in the 19th century, your option of being a wet nurse was a bit restricted. <laughs> it sounds sort of crazy, doesn't it? Of course, the sad fact about wet nursing was that it invariably... However you look at it economically, it was not good for the woman who was doing the wet nursing herself. Sometimes it came out because she'd lost her own child and uh, was then asked to breastfeed another person's child, or she would almost abandon her own children to very, very poor care and other wet nurses. To get the role of being a wet nurse in a more well to do family. So, really, everything about it is not a happy outcome for anybody involved. But, in some ways, you can sort of see the necessity of it in a period where there wasn't anything like formula milk. And in William's time, it would have been a widespread practice there were generally two kind of types of wet nursing. Sometimes the child would be sent away to live with the wet nurse in the country, and sometimes the wet nurse would come and live with the family. And it was generally thought better that the second option happened because they were sort of unseen out in other areas if they'd moved far away from the family. And also there was this thought that they couldn't often be very well educated because the women doing the breastfeeding were probably not that well educated either. And so, you know, it's better to bring the wet nurse in house, as it were, literally in house, and have her do the job there, and then the other aspects of the child's development could be at least monitored by the no doubt more well to do family. The wet nurse in some quite aristocratic families became quite an important figure and it became as a profession quite a well to do one. But um it would have been still very widespread in William's time But it's interesting that he does say they're not affectionate mothers, so perhaps that does indicate there was a feeling that wet nursing, if you could avoid it and if the mother could feed her own child, that was a better option. There were certainly, in Britain, I've read there was beginning by this time, by the late 1700s, there were physicians and philosophers and people like that who began to think actually... Wet nursing was not a good idea, so perhaps William's reflecting those theories in his own attitude towards it. He never mentions a wet nurse, actually, in his own family or children, so maybe Mrs Scott did breastfeed her own children. (coughs) Anyway, it does finish on that nice thing of the bourgeois Italian chap leaning out of the restaurant to show off, really, I suppose, how well he's doing. And as he says, the poor peasant classes try to imitate them as best they can on their pittance. Um, (laughs) In my mind, it conjures up a sort of uh, Samuel Pickwick-type character, in a way, going back to the Dickens theme again. So that is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I think there were some quite interesting bits there about the various bits of uh, Milan that William's noting at the time. Certainly some of those areas of central Milan are very, very different these days. And, of course, incidents like the Second World War and bombing had a huge impact on parts of the city as well. So um, quite often when I'm doing the research you do discover that many of the things that William is discussing aren't there anymore or have either been demolished or destroyed. <laughs> but I suppose you could say it's surprising how much has remained. Perhaps in that regard, it's quite nice that Milan was an important and architecturally interesting city where many of these buildings, where possible, have been preserved. And I think at the end there, we do get this sense, as I say, of William's slightly self-important status that he gives himself But it's very hard to imagine oneself back in those days and the sense of class and profession and what it meant to people. And also, you know, there is the element of how that is different in different countries and different cultures. We often say that Britain is a class-ridden country, but I think actually it can be applied to nearly all countries, can't it? I think it's almost just a natural human condition to sometimes think of oneself as being slightly superior in various ways, if possible, to... um, other people so i hope you have enjoyed this episode anyway and i look forward to welcoming you to the next one which if i remember correctly begins with william discussing the culture of funerals in milan so if you're a fan of funerals that's one to look out for okay once again if you have been thanks for listening